Hi, this is Better Red Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today we are going to be talking about Of Mice and Men, which is John Steinbeck's 1937 novella about two ranch workers during the Great Depression and bunny rabbits. So Tristan, why Of Mice and Men? Yeah, Steinbeck's great. Um, I, I know his politics toward the end of his life got kind of shitty. Um but in the 30s, he's a full commie and and just, you know, such a great and famous chronicler of the Depression um, and, you know, specifically California um, in the Depression. I, um, I I love the Grapes of Wrath. Um, I'm actually not sure if I've read Mice of Mice and Men before uh, because those two central characters, George and Lenny, are just so iconic that I kind of felt I knew the story from culture, even though like reading each page <laughs> didn't feel that familiar to me. But like something I found cool about this is I actually think it tracks pretty well in a lot of ways with Parable of the Sower um, and, and in ways that I didn't really expect. One, yeah, another California novel or, or novella in this case, which Meg, I know you're excited about. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the long history of California as this kind of exemplary site of the violences of American capital and race and environmental degradation, um, super relevant and obviously only becoming uh, more so uh, with, with climate change and the looming depression that we're entering. But another way I thought this tracked well with Butler is on uh, this kind of theme of loneliness as a product of the collapse of material conditions. Um, or I think that's what Steinbeck's saying about that. We, I really want to talk about that. You know, it, it's remarked a few times in the novel, how strange it is that, you know, George and Lenny travel together. Um, you know, this other farmhand Slim, uh, you know, says that other itinerant ra- laborers that, you know, he's mad, quote, never seem to give a damn about nobody. Uh, and, and much as we saw in Parable of the Sower, we're working through what it would mean uh, or take to form a community or a commons under such conditions. Um, I, I kind of see Steinbeck doing something in that vein. But again, I, I'm really curious what your guys' thoughts on that are. Uh, and and yeah, so I just have a lot of questions about the problems and uh, and and you, you know, sort of yeah, like how he poses the questions uh, he does around loneliness and what it's doing in this novel. Yeah, I mean, I admit that I had sort of like forgotten about Steinbeck, which is strange. I realized this week when I was rereading this, like how many goddamn books he wrote. Uh, And the reason I forgot that is because they don't actually all have the same plot, which is like most writers. Um, So like I've read a bunch of them and I didn't remember that I had. This is another one of those books that we've been talking about that like everyone has read it. I read it in high school. Um, And coming back to books like that, I'm always trying to figure out why they're assigned and sometimes it's for like this, like when we talked about things fall apart, I feel like there's some sort of like portrait of representation is trying to do or uh, the Scarlet Letter that it's like, oh, this is a symbol that you're looking for. And I think here it's trying to do something that not the book itself, but the, the assignment of it is trying to figure out something about like the universal importance of friendship or whatever, like. But that doesn't seem to be the point at all, like reading the book. And like you, Tristan, I'm interested in how this novella produces something like common ties because there are all these weird moments of commonality within and across uh, race, disability, and class. Um, Also, I think we can all just agree that we hate floozies. And (laughs) truly, that is the social glue that holds us all together. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's why we're friends. (laughs) <laughs> Indeed. Uh, 
Yeah, no, I want to I wanted to read this for other similarly high-minded reasons as usual. I just I really though feel a little bit like you two for the past several years have been harping on mice. It's just <laughs> it's mice this, it's mice that. You love computer mice. You have all kinds of hamster wheels. When finally we we got to a mouse book, I thought, "Okay, fine." We'll read of mice and men because the other option is flowers for fucking Algernon, and I can't read that shit due to a lack of emotional fortitude. <laughs> I also have certain just uh, recollections and and reflections in my mind on uh, mice and men. So if you want to take a, a psychological journey with me back to the year 2011, we can do this as sort of a guided meditation. Just allow yourself to relax completely. Okay, you close your eyes. You are a graduate student now. You live in Chicago, Illinois. Okay, this is easy so far. Yeah, yeah so far I'm on board. <laughs> don't, don't pull anything. <laughs> <laughs> so you, like a smart person, keep much of your food very low to the ground where, where it's not easily accessible. But then one day, you open a cabinet and you see little, little tiny brown little ovals, little nuggets. On top of your Campbell soup and and all <laughs> over your rice aroni, and you just think, oh, well, uh, maybe it's chocolate, and you keep eating that food. <laughs> oh, you, oh you no! And you just you keep eating it and keep eating it until you notice that the you have the, the antivirus. The, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, it was the fact that my Dum Dums lollipop started to smell like urine. Uh -huh, um, okay. Kitty, I this is a this is a very Charlie Kelly story so far. It is, it is. <laughs> it's actually like very much in the Katie Krivikolsky like comedy of errors moments wherein, <laughs> for example, you couldn't hang out because you sprayed yourself with gasoline. Oh yeah. I forgot. <laughs> Got into a gasoline fight. <laughs> I don't just talk about being a failed child, I live it. It's the only way to do it. Yeah, right. yeah, but there's a happy ending to that story, which is that um, I was about to break up with my boyfriend at the time, uh, where he was about to come over to break up with me, and I thwarted that by sort of meeting him in the lobby with with all kinds of cleaning supplies and doing a doing a we need to get together here and 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 fight the mouse invasion, <laughs> and so that was so that was just, that was the act of penance that I required uh, to exit a relationship with me. <laughs> And I will say that this goes to a larger theme. We've we've wandered away from of mice and men somehow, shockingly. Um, <laughs> but just break up with people by text. Don't waste a lot of time making appointments to do that. I mean, I, scheduling it. I I have enough to do. So let's let's do it that way and be grown ups. Yeah, that's. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've never quite had that experience, but you know, I had a stink bug land in my hair last week. How'd that, how'd that end? Uh, I flushed it because it's a matter of pride that I do not make my husband deal with creatures. Mm -hmm. That I must Good deal with you. them myself. So even though I went, ew, 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 I threw it away myself. <laughs> <laughs> All very proud nice. of you. Yes, indeed. It's the most, it's the most cardboard form of feminism. <laughs> <laughs> So today we are going to be talking about inequalities of 
many different kinds of forms. We're going to be talking about George and Lenny's relationship and whatever that means. Uh, and we're going to briefly touch on the religious aspects of this novella. So uh, for the summary of this, uh, Of Mice and Men is a short novella. It's like a play novella, which I'll talk about for a sec, about two migrant workers in Central California in the 1930s. George is a small, skinny guy, and his travel companion, Lenny, is his opposite, a huge man, shapeless of face, with large, pale eyes and wide, sloping shoulders. Lenny is profoundly developmentally disabled, which is marked in the novella in a bunch of ways. In the first scene, they are bound for a job working on a ranch, and we see them stop to rest and eat, and we learn a bunch of important things. Lenny has uh, found a dead mouse and has had it in his pocket while they're walking, and he's been like obsessively petting it. Uh, this will come back. We also learn that George wants Lenny not to talk kind of ever. And when they get to the job, he just wants to be certain that he doesn't say anything at all. So they then sit down to dinner, which is three cans of beans, and begin the endless question and answer session that is their relationship. Lenny asks where they're going. They're going to work on a ranch. Then they go back and forth about this forever. They discuss that they've been run out of the last town they were in, out of weed, because Lenny had grabbed a woman's dress wanting to feel it. He has this thing with um, with touch. And she yelled and they, quote, had to hide in an irrigation ditch all day with guys looking for us. They have this back and forth. They have this a couple of times in the book where George bitches about having to look out for Lenny and Lenny offers to like hoof off by himself. Although it's pretty clear by now that he's not really capable of caring for himself. And then we get to this beloved fantasy that we keep coming to over and over where George tells Lenny that they will buy this little farm and live off the fat of the land and Lenny will have rabbits to pet and take care of. And all this guy wants is fucking rabbits. Like this is his <laughs> big dream yeah. is taking care of rabbits. It's it's the bun bun Peter Rabbit book. It's a <laughs> it's part of the tradition of bunny bunny themed books. Um Beatrix Katie, Potter. Yeah, Beatrix Potter, the Velveteen Rabbit. Oh God, the Velveteen Rabbit is such a fucking depressing book. What the like, fuck? Yeah, seriously. Uh, it's like it's not a winner. Um Well, I'd like to submit Banicula for consideration. I love that book, actually. <laughs> which we'll talk about more later. Oh, that's a good book. We'll come back to it in our uh, vampire series. <laughs> about the rabbit who drains carrots. <laughs> All true. Uh, so all he wants is fucking rabbits. This part ends with some heavy foreshadowing, wherein George tells Lenny that if he ever gets in trouble, as he has before, he's going to come back to this little campsite where they've been resting and hide in the brush. Remember this. All of these things will come back later. Uh, so they get to the ranch and they meet the old swamper. Don't really know what that means. Candy in the bunks before meeting the boss. And George gives the boss the whole story of who they are. Like, sorta he mm. he phrases it as though i think he says they're cousins yeah he he keeps like <laughs> adjusting details over the specifics of their their relationship yeah yeah and and then he tells where they've come from again like sorta he leaves stuff out um and then the boss says that like oh that big guy is the quiet type um also he's a huge strong dude <laughs> yep again this is, comes up again and again 
and he leaves uh, and the old guy candy is sort of hanging around with his old aging dog and if you didn't look this up on the very important website does the dog die um (laughs) yes this dog dies and i am still mad about it it's not john wick degrees (laughs) of traumatizing but it ain't great and then the boss's son curly comes in and he oh this guy he has some like wild hair up his ass he gets mad that lenny doesn't talk to him when spoken to um he like curly also has on one glove and the reason for this is legitimately hilarious, which is that his glove is full of Vaseline because he's trying to keep it soft for his wife. <laughs> he's trying to keep it in a flashlight all day yeah. <laughs> for yeah. his wife. For, yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. yeah, and he's also Wives love that. He's also like the quintessential hold me back, bro guy. You know, oh, like yeah, he, just, for sure. he wants to fight everything all the time, or he he wants to like pretend to want to fight everything all the time. Yeah. Even though he has a soft paw. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's got one one hard paw is what that means. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Glove full of Vaseline. I'm never trying that, but I still – now I'm curious. <laughs> also, is it like a gauntlet? I, I don't know. Yeah. It's not like a – it's not like a rubber glove. I mean, we're not there. <laughs> No, and it's not like a it's not like a fancy Oscar Wilde uh, leather glove. I think of it as like a falconry glove, like a yeah. big, yeah. huge glove. Can can you imagine having like a cloth glove and thinking I'll fill it with Vaseline for the benefit of my spouse yeah. <laughs> for my for her pleasure? <laughs> no, but I have uh, gone to bed at night with Vaseline all over my feet and put socks on and. I, <laughs> so what are you laughing about? <laughs> it's not for the benefit of my spouse, and so nobody tweet at me about foot pics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's no. But I was gonna say, like, this does seem like some sound like some men's health shit. Like, if you keep your oh, yeah. your hand in Vaseline, that yeah, yeah, bro. Like, that's <laughs> your wife's gonna be real into it. Uh, write to Dan Savage and see if you should be keeping your hand in a glove full of Vaseline. <laughs> and also, don't write to him. I just texted him. He said yes. <laughs> see, yeah. the, the mystery is solved. <laughs> okay, so then Candy who again is this sort of older guy tells George that this wife that he's been looking for is a quote tart. And George sort of thinks like, Oh, this guy Carly is going to try and pick a fight with Lenny because he's all horned up from this cuckold situation and his soft hand. And indeed the wife drops by. She's like very lipsticky and tarty and whatever. And then this guy slim comes in who is a quote, Jerkline Skinner, the Prince of the Ranch, which I suppose is like a series of words <laughs> that somebody understands. Um, I, I'm the Duke of Horses. I, I looked it up and it's of course like, you did. no, no, yeah, because I was like, oh, what the fuck? Uh, yeah, no, like a Skinner refers specifically to a mule driver. And it was because, like, to manage mules, you had to be so good with your whip that you could, like, yeah, oh, it's, shit. yeah, like that. Yes, that's that's where it comes from. But yeah, it's very strange, like farmhand slang. <laughs> I have like new feelings about Slim, who I think you're supposed to really like in this book. 
Yeah, yeah, right. No, yeah, he is the yes, he is the he's the kind of like wise, sort of level headed one. Um, at yeah, mercilessly beating mules in the field all day. Jesus, the Duke of yeah. Mules. Yeah. Yowza. Oh yeah. So we also learn here that Slim's dog has had this new litter of puppies, and I'm sure you can guess who's going to be super excited by the news of a bunch of soft puppies. Call on me. <laughs> Spoiler, they're also it's not gonna be great for a hundred percent of the puppies. Um so in the evening, like George and Slim are talking in this bunkhouse, and of course Slim has let Lenny go off to hang out with the puppies, who again are like a day old, and that seems like not a great idea. And now Lenny wants to be in the barn with them all the time. So Slim asked George about Lenny, and George actually tells him the real story here, which is that he's looked after him since Lenny's aunt Clara died. Um, and then George tells Slim that he used to sort of like, like he, uh, somehow tricked him to like jumping into a river and as soon as he came out he was like smiling and and george was like oh i guess it's like not nice to um fuck with lenny and then he tells slim about the incident in weed again telling him the real story that lenny grabbed a girl's dress and she told the cops that he had raped her and so they had to take off but slim notes that lenny he says he's a nice fella this again people keep saying this about him um but lenny comes in and i know that this i the way i say this sounds like a play this will come back later in our discussion and lenny is like completely in love with the puppies he's secreted one in his coat so he can pet it all night long but george and slim make him return it to the barn of course so these other workers carlson and wit the old guy Candy, George and Slim are hanging out in the bunkhouse when Carlson begins complaining about Candy's old dog. He says like he stinks and he's old and he's arthritic and etc. So after much back and forth, Carlson somehow convinces Candy to let him uh, shoot this very old dog. And Candy agrees. Why? Yeah, I, I mean, it does he agree, or it's it's kind of like extorted from him, right? Like, I mean, he, yeah, yeah I mean, it's fucked. Up. Yeah, I mean, I'm not the whole scene's fucked up, but it is, it is like I don't know. One thing that I definitely want to talk about today is the kind of outsider neediness of everyone, and that that that's like a that's a moment at which like the the sort of like communal aggression turns to candy, the old guy, but it, it kind of just bounces around, you know. Yeah, I mean, it bounces around among three characters in particular, I would say. Yes, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, we'll get into this, but it's sort of like, it's sort of important to point out that it's not like they're just, they are be, they are absolutely being cruel, but it's, there is a, there is an old dog who is maybe pissing and shit, shitting on himself and all this stuff in their common area, like right. where they're sleeping and stuff. Right. It is important to remember the kind of space this is, the sort of like economic conditions, right? It's like, yes, this is like a bunch of dudes who are like, like, you know, laboring in the fields all day in this very kind of confined space. It's, uh, in which all, yeah, I mean, so, right. It's not, it's not cool <laughs> that this happens, but it's like, no. I don't know. I think it kind context, it, well, yeah, it, it's just it, the, the sort of context kind of like goes to like what exactly is happening there, but. Well, I'm still mad. Yeah, I know. I agree. It's fucked yeah, up. No, it's, a, it's an extremely fucked up scene. Um, hundred hundred percent agree. Just 
the the thing is like there's a there's a distinction between kindness and politeness that we all make and it's not totally clear where that is when things start oh. like when you start not having anything yeah yes. that's actually yeah. that makes sense to me but i still like when i was writing up the summary i had to like go cuddle with both of my dogs Aww. yeah yeah no no right and and, and yeah and, and i think that that i think that that effect right i mean that's definitely what steinbeck wants there but i think it it goes to what katie's saying it's like you see it's like yeah you see how fucked up it is so think about like what think about the kind of space where that would happen and and yeah, yeah. you know what i mean so right okay so like after we hear the the shot he he takes the dog out outside of the barn so we don't actually see this we hear the shot i cry about it and then the the guy crooks who is the quote stable buck comes into the bunkhouse um i don't know if they're using buck in the racist sense or not because i don't know enough about ranching i i that's how i had read it but i could be wrong okay but he comes into the bunkhouse. Um, he's black, but of course, everyone exclusively uses the N-word to refer to him. Crooks tells Slim that Lenny is kind of like messing around with the puppies. Um, while they're gone, the rest of the guys muse. They talk about like visiting one of the town's two brothels before, like, again, Curly barges in demanding to know if anyone has seen his wife, who, let's remember, curls her hair but doesn't brush it out. Because that's what horrors do. Because <laughs> it's sexier when it's in l- little ringlets, like when a it, haunted doll. <laughs> <laughs> when it looks like sausages. Mm. <laughs> yes. That's, that's Such a weird sexy. adjective they keep using, yeah. I know. I know. Uh, so when Lenny and Slim come back and the rest of the guys, except Candy, leave, Lenny demands to hear this, like, the dream of living off the fat of the land. And when Candy overhears this, he basically invites himself to their party, um, but they're not super mad about it because Candy seems cool. Uh, and then they all agree, like, they're not supposed to talk about it around the other guys. So all the dudes come back, and then Curly, of course, is being a huge dick and picks a fight with Lenny. We knew this was going to happen, and in true, the largest dude ever fashion <laughs> Lenny grabs one of Curly's fists and like grabs it in his hand and breaks every bone in Curly's hand. Yeah. You know, like humans can do. Like humans can do. Yeah. I seriously imagined the largest person that I can imagine who's like seven feet and 500 pounds. And I'm like, nope. Yeah. Can that happen? Well, the, the other thing is, like, I did expect in this scene for, for Curly to be avenged by his friends, uh, Mo and Larry, and uh, <laughs> and a piano to fall on someone and, uh, you know, someone to get yeah. their eyes poked out. And it doesn't all quite pan out, but some of my expectations were fulfilled by that, yeah. by yes. that rather ludicrous se- fight scene. Absolutely. So, okay. So everyone agrees, though, that they're going to tell the boss that Curly got his hand stuck in a machine because they don't want to get Lenny in trouble because he's such a nice fella. Um, And then the next scene is actually a scene uh, because this is also a play in which Crooks, the stable hand is hanging out in his bunk in the harness room, which initially doesn't seem too terrible until he mentions that there's like a giant horseshit pile right outside his window. It's Saturday night and Lenny, Candy, and Crooks have been left on the ranch while everyone else goes to town to get their fun liquor and ladies times. 
So Lenny comes into Crook's room and they have this like conversation, but it's not really a conversation. They're talking past each other. But Crook's does the thing where he's like fucking with Lenny. He asks him like hypothetically, like what would happen if something bad happened to George? And it turns out that Crook's is sort of, you know, leaning towards something else. So Because Lenny like freaks out about this, even though it's like a hypothetical, he can't quite like read that. He says like, did something happen to him? So he's freaked out, but then Crooks comforts Lenny and he says, like, at least he and George have each other, whereas Crooks doesn't have anyone to talk to and has been is always rejected by everyone who works there. Lenny tells Crooks about this, the dream, the farm, and they have yet another convert to their rabbit raising <laughs> lifestyle. Watership down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a society. Um, and then Candy eventually joins them. He, too, is still excited about this fantasy. Crook says, I never seen a guy really do it, meaning start this little commune. Uh, I seen guys nearly crazy with loneliness for land. But every time a whorehouse or a blackjack game took what it takes. And then he sort of hesitates and he says, if you guys would want a hand to work for nothing, just his keep why I'd come and lend a hand. So then, of course, like the whore of Babylon stops by with her annoying hair, uh, wondering where her husband is and noting that the rest of the men, quote, left all the weak ones here. Uh, this is what I mean when I think like three of these people are especially fucked with in this yeah. book. And so she, of course, goes into this rant about her, her dumb husband is boring and nobody will hang out with her. And then Candy sort of stops her, telling her to, like, fuck off with this floozy stuff and they're going to have this awesome farm. Um, so she sort of does this couple lines where she's flirting with Lenny, who's just, like, confused about this. And then she she outright threatens Crooks, saying, I could get you strung up on a tree so easy it ain't even funny. Some pretty nasty shit. Uh, so then we sort of like we uh, somebody overhears the other guys come back. Candy overhears the other guys come back. Candy tells the wife she doesn't have a name. Cool. Um, um, that if she goes back up to the house, they won't tell Curly that she had stopped by to complain. So George returns to find. Lenny and then the two of them leave with Candy but the last interaction that they have is like Candy says to Crooks that bitch did not to have said that to you uh, Crooks says it wasn't nothing you guys coming in and sat and made me forget what she says is true yeah and again like that that moment that like just the, the uh, sort of like simmering rage like that so many characters the, the, and that like yeah like identifying who like yeah like re responding to your own sort of like dissatisfaction and maybe even marginalization by immediately marginalizing someone else like that yeah. that happens like again and again in this novel right and that and 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 that that extremely racist moment is like i don't know one of like kind of one of the most visceral but i think it's like this is a this is a perpetual thing that just happens in this in this space you know well to some degree so is the moment where crooks is kind of fucking with lenny yeah, yes right exactly like, yeah really uh, like upset about this and then it's like oh he's he's going for something here like he's trying to get to a point that's not that yes yes exactly mm -hmm. yeah okay so we change we change scenes and we're in the barn it's sunday afternoon 
Lenny is the only one in the barn and he's like mourning this dead puppy because he yet again has petted something to death. He's terrified that if George finds out about the dead puppy, he won't let him tend the rabbits on their farm. So like who, you know, darkens his doorway but make up McGee. Uh, and Lenny is really scared of her because George has told him to stay the fuck away from this, you know, Jezebel. <laughs> but she says, why can't I talk to you? I never get to talk to nobody. I get awful lonely. And Lenny basically keeps r- repeating that he can't talk to her or have anything to do with her. So she keeps whining about being lonely and how like she could have been in the movies and stuff. And then because this is Lenny, he has this brief like rabbit related monologue telling her that he likes to pet soft stuff and she offers that she likes to feel silk and velvet and she says do you like velvet which of course he does she tells him that she likes doing her hair which we know because it looks dumb and it's very soft and and she offers to let him touch it which he does um and then she says like oh stop doing that because he'll mess it up and while she's yelling about this He puts his hand over her face and like shakes her quickly and shakes her to death. Yeah, he snaps snaps her neck. Yeah, yeah. again, like like a human being thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So he's naturally like terrified. So he takes the dead puppy with him and he leaves her body. And it's sort of, uh, I have this question about like whether these two corpses like mean the same thing to him. Yeah. And maybe yeah. the book. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, first Candy and then George come into the barn and they find the body. And uh, Candy says, What done it? George looks at him and he says, Ain't you got any idea? And then Candy is silent. George says, I should have knew. I guess maybe way back in my head, I did. Meaning he knew something bad would happen. Yeah. Uh, they're figuring out like what to do in Candy. Uh, <laughs> because anytime anything bad is happening, he's like, what about our farm? And of course, George says, I think I knowed from the very first. I think I knowed we'd never do her. He used to like to hear about it so much. I got to thinking maybe we would. So that's very sad. And while Candy is bemoaning this loss, George collects the rest of the guys. And Curly, of course, instantly knows it's Lenny. And he grabs his, he looks for his Luger to hunt him down, although he can't find it. Um, so it's like implied that Lenny has taken it. But not implied. They The guys say he has, but we know he hasn't. Um, so when they go, they leave Candy with the body to look after it. And... Quote, when they were gone, Candy squatted down in the hay and watched the face of Curly's wife. Poor bastard, he said softly. So, So, new scene. Of course, we come across Lenny. He's hiding in the brush, as he was supposed to do when the inevitable bad thing happens. And then (laughs) Lenny has these two, like, weird vision, like, fantasy things. The first is when it's, it's written, like, oh, they come out of his head. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah uh, they're like yeah they're, but they're they almost have this like hallucinatory quality to them mm-hmm. right like yeah yes they're real to him yeah yeah so his aunt clara comes out of his head and she scolds him for not appreciating george's help and then in the second one like a big bunny appears 
uh, he's also there to like drag Lenny and he says, you ain't fit to lick the boots of no rabbit. Um, so he's like yelling at the rabbit and George finds him and Lenny is like, sure that George is going to be mad. He says he's going to give him hell, but George isn't mad. This is a bad sign. And Lenny makes him give him the monologue about the farm. And so George is telling this and he's like guided meditationing Lenny and saying like, oh, look down there across the river. Like you can almost see the place. And then we sort of hear this rustling in the brush. We know that the guys are coming closer. Uh, but before the other guys can find them, George shoots Lenny in the back of the head. And then when the guys find them, Slim sort of says like, oh, he had a gun and you you had to do it. You had no choice. And then he says, you had a George. I swear you had a come on with me. Right. And the last line is that he leads George into the entrance of the trail and up toward the highway. Curly and Carlson looked after them and Carlson said, now what the hell you suppose is eating them two guys? Yeah. And, and right. And, and so, yeah, the, the, right. As you just said that like slim, it, it, when he says you had, you had to do it to the other guys, right. It's because of this, this fiction about the gun, but it has a very different meaning to Joe between George and slim, right. That like that, then that gets to this, like, you know, very ugh, like euthanasia type kind of claim, I think. Uh, but yeah, anyway. Yeah. Well, the so. question is like, would he suffer more if the other guys found him? that's yes. That that's the other thing yeah. that like, basically they're going to, they're the, yeah, that they're going to, they're going to murder him. And yeah. And, and I think Curly had been talking about like shooting him in the stomach and stuff. So, yeah. but yeah, anyway. Yeah. He would, it it was about saving him from being killed awfully. But I think also, of course, it's like he was going to die awfully in some way mm-hmm. at some point. Yes. Unless George killed him. Like that's the only good death imaginable for yes. him. Yeah. And and right. And I oh god, that horrible scene with the dog too, right? Like that that and I mean I hate I don't you know, I this is such a gross equivalence to be drawing, but I think the novel kind of invites you to be doing it, right? Because it it has just yeah. demonstrated oh well what happened and yeah, like and well and Candy too. Doesn't Candy say like after they do it to the dog, like, oh I guess that because Candy's old and I think Candy's also mm-hmm. like I think Candy's lost a hand that like mm-hmm. I guess that, that that'll just happen to me someday or that people would want to just do that to me someday. And then we see that happen to Lenny. Um, And Slim says, like, if I ever get old and he's the word he uses is crippled, then I hope somebody would shoot me. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So uh, context wise for this, um, Steinbeck was a novelist, journalist, and nonfiction writer who won the Nobel prize in 1962. Apparently this was a controversial decision. Um, The New York times asked the Nobel Committee, asked why the Nobel Committee gave the award to an author whose, quote, limited talent is, in his best books, watered down by 10th rate philosophizing. Which is weird because I I thought that I thought like Steinbeck's stuff was reviewed pretty well, or is, am I wrong about that? I feel like, it, I, especially The Grapes of Wrath. Yeah, so, all right, fuck but you. But the New York Times is just being like its usual snob liberal dum-dums yes as always fuck the new york times <laughs> but, uh, in what capacity did they ask <laughs> um 
That's I mean, they probably just like posed it in some op-ed. It also like when the Nobel Committee's uh, notes were released in 2012, it turned out that like seven people had been nominated and the committee was like, I guess this is fine. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why Robert Graves doesn't have a Nobel Prize. (laughs) (laughs) Like that's again, like I don't remember who does and doesn't. That's dumb. Yeah. Doesn't fucking VS Naipaul have a Nobel Prize? I think so. I just yeah, again, it's like, but so does Philip Roth, as I remember. Yeah. Philip Roth? I don't remember. It's it's, it's some bunch of jerks. (laughs) Don't 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 look any of this up, uh listeners. Don't don't tell us if we're how wrong we are. Yeah. Um I'm sure Biden will get one the moment he's elected. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, Nobel Peace Prize for Joe Biden. Uh, super great. Great place to start the summary with the weird relationship Steinbeck has to the canon and to American literature, actually. He wrote more than 30 books, including Of Mice and Men, Tortilla Flat, The Red Pony, and then The the Big Boys, The Grapes of Wrath, and East of Eden. Uh, so he often writes about the poor white migrant population that we see some of in Of Mice and Men. Although the Grapes of Wrath is like probably the most famous cultural representation of that, um, with the possible exception of the Dorothea Lange photograph, Migrant Mother. Yeah. And so If Mice and Men comes out in 1937. And as I mentioned in the summary, it's a novella slash play, which is like the weird, it's a weird, weird form. The theatrical productions in LA and New York were well received, and it was made into a movie in 1939 with Burgess Meredith and Lon Chaney Jr., <laughs> the Wolf Man. <laughs> uh, and and it has also been on the uh, ALA Most Challenged Books list like a million times. It's one of those books for reading reasons including profanity, racist language, quote. Per- promoting euthanasia and that (laughs) quote steinbeck is known to have had an anti-business attitude so Um, parents don't have them yeah Uh, and i don't i'm sorry i don't think it actually promotes euthanasia and uh that anti-business attitude rock the fuck on right (laughs) yeah absolutely Yes. Yes. No. If you are trying to protect your little CEOs and entrepreneurs from <laughs> reading of mice and men, yeah, yeah. fucking problem. Yeah, we got a problem. Um, and we may not have a chance to discuss it, but the I suspect that when someone's mad about that version of promoting euthanasia, they're mad Catholics. Um, but the issue of like quote euthanasia is one that people in disability studies discuss sometimes because there are lots of movies and books where like death is preferable to disability but it's not clear to me that that's actually what's going on in this book but yeah i get why some people in some other contexts are mad about euthanasia yes this isn't one of those you smile through the tears of tragedy type endings it's just like oh boy yeah yeah exactly its tragedy is is wrought differently, but like it's really important. Of course, this is where Tristan wanted me to go from from square one, which is like <laughs> Steinbeck has politics. Yay! Um, <laughs> what do you know? What do you know? Uh, but like a lot of people's, they are 
good sometimes and bad sometimes. Um, yeah. So let's just like remind you, dear listener, that the point of this show is not to get mad at books because <laughs> their writers had bad politics or mixed politics. That's not <laughs> shut up. We're not here to hang counter revolutionaries out to dry. I mean, <laughs> no, we are, but like not, not books. No, no. Whenever I see a book, I like to give it a piece of my mind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not just a word body. So, okay. So Steinbeck is known for his like leftist, communist, left-ish, liberal, pro-Vietnam War, hawkish, mm-hmm. and Soviet politics. Wait, like all of them? Yes. <laughs> Indeed, all of them. Uh, yeah. Um. But importantly for us, he was a member of the League of American Writers in the 1930s, which was part of this um, Communist Party. And it was an association that included such sexy-ass luminaries, I mean that for real, uh, as Meridal Lesur, Nathaniel West, Langston Hughes, et al. Um, expectedly, However, the LAW did not survive the series of ideological debates in the 1940s. Uh, We've discussed this before, that there's a number of fairly serious ideological crises at that time. It was disbanded in 1943. But during the 1930s, Steinbeck was a huge union supporter, as well as a New Deal booster, which I think is sort of a left-ish or left-liberal position. But I I think it's a little more important for our sake today is to just think about the point of view that his fiction produces, which is a major influence on left and liberal perceptions of poor white migrants. One significant point of view is the liberal one that dominated the print culture of that moment, especially magazines. Although like there were at that time, some left points of view. But the liberal point of view is that the impoverished people of the Dust Bowl should be perceived sympathetically and best served through state programs. Um, this is one of the reasons the images of the Dust Bowl are so closely associated with the New Deal. Cultural formations and New Deal liberalism are knit together in some really important ways. So the Lang uh, photographs the Erskine Caldwell's work, uh, Steinbeck's novels, come in to stand in for the actual people who were so disenfranchised in that moment. But we can also see these works from like a more left point of view, and lots of critics certainly do this. Like, so that would require things like recognizing how anthropogenic climate change produced the conditions for this population, often white, but also black and native people who are not well served by the New Deal, but who are among very significant populations of labor organizers and labor general in the 20th century. Um, We got to mention Woody Guthrie here, of course. (laughs) And then this is something we see in Steinbeck, right? So like he spends a lot of his time focusing on work and the strain of having work and not having it. So another important trope that I think of Steinbeck as having sort of like, 
I don't mean promoted, but like he talks about it a lot, which is that he seems to represent people who just like who are barely keeping their shit together, which I think is like a really interesting um, component of like literature about about this moment and people who are who are poor. This is certainly like the thing in the Grapes of Wrath is that Tom is like barely holding this together. Yeah. And and I think that like so that that uh, takes us um to what the what the George and Lenny relationship is, right? Because like mm-hmm. it because like yeah, I mean like so okay, so I mean you mentioned that uh or, like early on uh, or earlier in the show we mentioned that right that that all like most of the other characters are more just like oh it's weird that you two are so close and travel together um and and that you know it's like uh, I think it's it's uh, slim that says yeah we we don't you know, nobody sees that um and I think like one of the implications there is just like this kind of form ex- this this form of sort of extreme poverty and the depression um and and the the sort of like itinerant labor conditions have like caused a breakdown of sociality to the extent that it is it is and th- this is why i was thinking so much a parable of the sower right and the kind of the, the proletariat outside the gate so that's just it it has it, it's like humanity has been like stripped down to like it's it's sort of most uh, uh, just, uh like yeah just i mean the, the the collapse of material conditions like a sort of collapse of of sort of community in some way mm-hmm. but yet like george and lenny do have some sort of uh i, I don't know if it's a community because it's just two people uh and they are still kind Kind of arrayed against the world in various ways but like they're able to it is striking that they that there is like a interpersonal relationship there in a way that we don't that seems to be very uncommon or or even like impossible in this world right yeah so it's unusual and it's also so it's confusing i think for some of the characters it's also profoundly attractive to them also being lonely so it's like mm-hmm. they do get we, we get this like imaginary community thing for out of this bedtime story that George keeps telling that he yeah. that he likes so much that that Lenny likes so much and then that that George winds up telling so much and wanting to believe that he that so it involves him in this fantasy that he has he he knows is a a production for Lenny mm-hmm. um but but it does still sort of magnetize people who then realize how fragile it is to hope for connection given the lives that they lead right and that's partly why like candy and crooks seem to be the people who sort of like warm to this idea yeah they they do but what also what's interesting though is like each time there's a new person that's brought into the fantasy which it seems like george at least always knows that this is fat like katie like you were saying it's a production for lenny like um he doesn't actually believe this is going to happen but like he gets mad like when can like when when, when lenny tells candy about it and then he gets mad that when like you know that the crooks is going to be part of it like like each additional person being brought into the fantasy seems to like make it more precarious in some way um which like what's what's that like what is that about is that just because it underscores it's like fantasy quality is it because it's like it's deeply anxious about like what is too much like what's going to like press the idea of community too far in a way that it can't sustain i I, i'm not sure i think part of it too is that george so when they come upon the body of 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 curly's wife but he basically says like oh you well you know what happened like what are you asking what happened for like you know exactly what happened and i think that's part of why george desperately wants some kind of community but he doesn't think that lenny can hold it together long enough or that other people would even though people are super like 
they they recognize some kind of uh, sweetness in Lenny. Like mm-hmm. they say he's a nice guy. This is the most emotion these people show casually is like, oh, he's a, he's a nice fella. Yeah. So like it's this thing where George says like, he kn- I, I think I noted from the first. I think I know we'd never do her. But he used to like to hear about it so much I got to thinking maybe he would. Right. So it's like it's completely something about what they're producing on Lenny's behalf, like to a certain degree, but then it turns out to be like, no, actually it's for, for them. But I think like the more you talk about it, the more it becomes concrete or you have to make it concrete in the sense that like, once they start talking about numbers, like how much money would we need for for this? It becomes like, Oh, this is definitely not going to happen. Yeah. Well, right. And and when Candy actually ha- like Candy has a few hundred dollars saved up, which like George and, and it's also clear like so George claims like he knows this farm that they can get, I think, for like six hundred dollars total. Mm-hmm. Like I and it's it's unclear to me whether he actually does know about this or this is just part of like the stories. He's, oh yeah, I, I have so, no idea. Yeah, I don't yeah. I don't think it's you know, I don't think the novel like tells you that like explicitly. But like when but like Candy's like, oh well, I've got a few hundred dollars in a way that it, it you know, like I mean it's like it it doesn't feel like hopeful like you're like you're saying it's like it's oh like shit like this is like this is bringing it too close to the real and we know that like it, the real cannot support it yeah um, no it's like it's like fucking high school kids saying that they're that they know ariana grande or whoever the fuck <laughs> they would say now i don't know yeah um and Insert then like actual famous person for gen zers here Yes, you YouTube a YouTube star. Think of your yeah. favorite YouTube star. Sure, it's uh, and then somebody and it's like, oh, but we don't have a car to get there. And then somebody's like, well, we can borrow my mom's car. And then like <laughs> yeah. he, he's been caught, he's exposed himself, and he's yeah. I think then ashamed that that he let he likes the idea and that ever that everybody does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that they've all entertained this fantasy is like it's kind of embarrassing for them. Yeah, and and I wonder, like, part of the reason why it's embarrassing does get to like, yeah, I mean, sort of the material conditions, right? That like that the idea that like it's sort of like a, a kind of like a weakness to like it, you know in this the, like it, we're basically just like kind of merely sort of like living on is so visceral and challenging that you've allowed yourself to have this indulgence. Yeah, it like demonstrates weakness in some way, or just or just like kind of detachment in a way that I think it, it's shameful in a way because it's sort of like it's threatening like to, to sort of allow yourself to, to do that although it's also i think deep deeply human need to like be able to kind of escape in that way but but i do like you know and, and Kate, I, I know that um I, you know katie you said there uh, i think you know very good case for there's kind of religious uh allusions here or 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 models for what 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 george and and, and lenny are like what how we're supposed to read that relationship but the one thing i did just want to say is that basically all of these characters are like marginalized in some, and some and and it does go back to, in many ways to i think po- like extreme poverty but i think that there is, are also like sort of important differences to register there right like so i mean candy like yes he's you know i mean he's a poor laborer but like his age and like you know the fact that he's lost a hand like you mark him as an outsider in some way crooks like explicitly because of his race like i mean he, he even has to have this separate space of deprivation away from the kind of white space of deprivation um that you know so so i think there is there there is like kind of a, a you know commonality and sort of like the material producing that kind of isolation but i also think there is like particularity there that um that seems important to me to what the novel's trying to say 
Right. Yeah. I think that I think one way to think about it and understand it is that stuff we talked a little bit about in the beginning, which is um the the biblical story of Cain and Abel, which like there are a ton of parallels here and the thing that people know that story from usually is um, the question that Cain asks after he kills his brother Abel, which is, am I my brother's keeper? Mm-hmm. Mm. That, I think, is a big part of what Steinbeck is getting at. Like, it's that kind of a question. In the biblical story, like you're, it, there's supposed to be sort of a universal answer to that, and it's this really strange moment of, of a rhetorical question being asked like because god is like where is your brother and presumably don't you know and it's to produce this question from cain which is am i am i my brother's keeper and i i i think that like steinbeck is asking what that actually means but he's also taking it work in the aftermath of the story because the punishment cain's punishment is that he has to become a wanderer with mm-hmm. nowhere to stay. And that has already happened from the beginning of this story. Yeah. And so we, yeah, that's, yeah, totally true. So we get this funny thing where it's like, say we've learned the lesson of the story of Cain and Abel, and we are now wanderers in Steinbeck. Does the question, am I my brother's keeper, still matter? And I think he's saying it does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. I think it also gets like all weird and tangled up and I don't know if this is like the time to mention it, but Lenny isn't aware of his impoverishment. No, he's not. Right. And that's very different from every other character that we perceive to be However we want to, like there are people who, you're right, Tristan, it's like a particularity, but the sort of like you. But the the quality that they all have is loneliness. Yeah, and Lenny doesn't have it, but he's afraid of it. He That's true. he is he is he is he is afraid of it. But but I would say the fact that he doesn't that maybe that he doesn't have that awareness is also what makes him more well. Like if he didn't have George there as a check on his like sort of social impulses, like you know that George like don't talk to people, like then mm-hmm. then he would try to forge connections. And I think I mean it is fucked up the way George is like don't talk to people. But I mean like I also think it is coming from a protective impulse in George, right? That he does. He doesn't want people to take advantage of Lenny or he doesn't want, you know, he basically feels like being asked questions is like a threatening thing. And when you're in this position, but if if that wasn't there, like Lenny would try to forge relationships with others. And and it's, yeah, in a way that, that other people just don't like they shut down, they build walls around themselves. And I think it is his, his lack of awareness or understanding of his kind of impoverishment, like you're saying, Megan, that enables that. Um, And then that, that points, yeah, that that points to the connection between isolation. And, and the sort of and impoverishment or or material conditions um so there sorry it's like with respect to the religion aspect though like i think katie tell me if i'm wrong that like what this then producing is something like attention right so it's like the wanderer is like is that there from the beginning or is that like produced in the end or is there like it, am i my brother's keeper it seems to be an open question yeah and it's it's the question that that gets posed out of frustration, which is very much oh yeah like like George's whole affect and attitude th- 
throughout the story is like frustration and mm-hmm. and fear that he's like, oh, don't fuck this up. Like, let's not fuck this up. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is because he the only thing that he is has any real permanent tie to is Lenny. And so it's not just that he's afraid that somebody might take advantage of Lenny or whatever else or that Lenny might do something again that's he might kill somebody, he might get into some kind of trouble um because he's also afraid he's going to lose Lenny cuz he, yeah. he mm-hmm. like he doesn't get to he could he could leave him but he doesn't and when he describes or when he like sort of narrates for himself why he does say it's good to have somebody around to talk to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is like the thing that everybody says. Yeah. And he's learned again, there's this thing like where I find that scene in the middle so odd where he's like, Oh, I used to fuck with him a lot, but I don't anymore. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. And, and like that part of why I find that so odd, right. Is, is I still don't think that like, okay, uh, it's nice to have someone around to talk to. Well, okay. But that, that could be, that, that could be said about like almost any uh, a person that you were like friends with or whatever. Um, like the, the brothers keepers stuff, I think and the Cain and Abel story is, is so interesting. I think one thing though, is like, like they're not, there's, they're not, they have no blood relationship to each other. Right. And like, why George has like, you know, why, you know, why, why George and Lenny are together in this way does feel sort of like almost like beyond explainable in some way that, that I, but I, but I wonder if that gets to like, that, that also goes back to a biblical point about like, am I my brother's keeper? Like it, it, it is referring to brothers, but like, it also becomes like this sort of like universal injunction to humanity generally. Right. And so that, so, you know, in, in that sense, it's, it's like very important that like the specifics of why they have this close relationship is like un- kind of under articulated or under explained because it is supposed to be this kind of universal significance. Right. Um, so like, okay. so Steinbeck is trying the story of Cain and Abel backwards and forwards. Like it, oh. where the biblical story begins, this ends. Mm-hmm. And so, it's not a fully formed thought that I that I'm having, but I think that it has something to do with with universality and like any way you slice it, there's something to it. Any way you tell it, there's something there. And everybody seems to be feeling this ambient loneliness and everyone's reaching out for some kind of connection and nobody's getting it. Well, that makes me think, too, that's like despite – what we know is this like ambient loneliness, but also this sort of like ambient cruelty that is like the series of material conditions and that they can only sort of like mm-hmm. be amongst each other or, or with each other or whatever is that um, it's to a certain degree, like smoothing out the edges of the ruptures to any going on in the sense that like, it seems weird to like talk shit about Lenny, but one of the things he's constantly doing is like upending that people could just like work or like get on with their life or whatever it is, you know, that it's like they could keep things like they could keep their shit together for 30 fucking seconds and they can't if he's around. They can't when he's not around either though. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, but but right. But so he is his, like he then becomes like a vector, right? For, for, 
just a sort of truism generally, right? Like the, the, or, or yeah, or, or in some way, like a scapegoat in some way for what is always already true in this kind of sort of like existence of precarity. But yeah. Cause no, no Megan, like you're right that it's, they can't go on because of, I think because of Lenny, but also it's like, they can't go on because of any, vulnerability yeah well they have to get from place to place like there's there is like not actually any keeping your shit together but there's like the the there's the notion that if one or two things weren't happening that you might be keeping your shit together yeah i guess like the vision of keeping keeping George's shit together that we get from him is like I would go to a bar and I would go to the brothel. That's his fantasy of of life without Lenny. His big fantasy is not not the rabbit farm, but he'll go to a brothel and he'll get drunk whenever he wants to. It's escapism into the present as opposed to the future, which is like is that how how do we say how do we like say that one is more uh durable or I don't know. Well, that, um, it's sustaining. not really like it's it's like actually sort of terrifying to have something like a future orientation, except for this like what we know to be a fantasy. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Except like you know, because he could he could have the escapism that is about the present. I I completely agree, but he can't. Like the book offers no. Um, <laughs> You know, it's really hard to say, like, what happens after the book? Because there is no after the book. We all know that. That's fine. We all know that. But sometimes the book sort of, like, allows you, the reader, to have a fantasy about its postscript. But this book doesn't. No. And and I think that there is a claim there, too. And that, I mean, (laughs) what what fu- what the future is is this is a lot of the same like they're like i mean the, the idea yeah like it's something again we talked about last time yeah it's the grind and something again we talked about last time but like having a future like having 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 a narrative is a luxury i think you made that point last episode katie that, that you know the that Butler was saying. Um, and I'm kind of amazed that I keep going back to Octavia Butler with this book. Just to, <laughs> I did not expect those connections, but, but like, yeah, having like a few, like the few, like a future in a narratable way, that's not just more of the same depressing, degrading shit. That is a luxury. That's something that does not exist for this particular class position in this, in, in this space. Mm-hmm. But people are looking for narratives everywhere. Yes, Absolutely. And so this is like, for me, one of the things that Curly's wife is doing is like, she's actually maybe not exemplary, but she's really like committed to producing a narrative. Yes, she is. I could have been in the pictures, you know, like that version of it. Yeah. And so I just, something to get, just something to get out of this, um, do we? Th- this sounds like this is this sounds like a stupid question. Um, and usually, I would make fun of people for asking this, like where they think that like representation equals like sort of like anything, the, yeah, or or endo- well, endorsement, right? That like if a, if a book like you know, it's like the idea that like a protagonist is bad is just like deeply shocking to some readers. But but right. like, do we think the Excuse massage? Me, I think Lolita really is uh, an endorsement <laughs> of child abuse. Ah, yes, yes. I, well, I'm sure that you would be joined in that position with many PTA groups throughout the United States well, over the decades. Yeah, but no, exactly. Uh, but but like it, it. But I seriously have this question: 
is the misogyny around Curly's wife. And to be clear, I mean, like she is a horrible racist. Like there's a lot of things that are like objectively terrible about her, but is the misogyny around how she's depicted the novel's misogyny about her or is like the, the misogyny a pro, an additional pro, in the same way that like you know like race and flex other characters or age disability that like misogyny becomes for her yet another barrier for the kind of connection that she would want right so it's like it's it's whether it's a problem of the novel or the problem that the novel is staging I actually don't know what I think about that I mean I kind of think it's both. Okay, so I think I think it's both in the way that take this little journey with me if you don't mind. So like <laughs> this character is uh, she what she really wants is to have an account of herself, like an explanation yep. for herself, like mm-hmm. a story, like an alibi for why she's not what she dreamed of being. And so she has like these so she has these uh fantasies that she falls back on. Uh, that are gendered, you know, it's womanly foolishness, right? It's, mm-hmm. That's yeah. that's who she is. But there's this other thing going on, which is the fact that the way we're introduced to her is that um, her husband thinks that what she really wants is a man who sticks one hand in a glove full of Vaseline. <laughs> and that will be the thing that, like, you know, yeah. makes her happy. Right. <laughs> is, is, is being fingered. <laughs> With, Sorry, with like, like a with like like a marginally so- with one soft t- i mean yeah yeah she's not really asking that's not what she's asking for but she's still not asking for a lot because she's only asking to like have an account yeah yeah and 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 so the version of like doing something for her is is this like weirdo thing it's not like she's unthought of she's very much uh she's like the center of stuff because she's the only she's the only lady around you know Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and that's another weird thing right and it's also like what bothered what the thing that did bother me and again it's like it's a little clunky to say like is this book misogynist or not but like uh that she just comes around to stir up shit is one of those things but it's also like this novel is mostly full of like cardboard people yeah Mm-hmm. So it's not like she's special in being cardboardy. Yeah, and and I would no, she's not. Well, and and and, and was it just people that are just like seething pits of simmering rage, right? That like, yeah. like no, and, and like because like the the you uh, so okay, I, like I you know, and I think that we're sort of you know uh, asked to have a lot of sympathy for her uh, up until the moment when she you know threatens Crooks with lynching. That possibility for a kind of like explosion into violence is something that we just see throughout the book. And I mean, Curly dramatizes it probably more than anyone else. And he's just he wants to find something in the world to fight, um, right? And so, so that and, and and yeah, and actually, like earlier in that scene when uh, when when Crooks uh, basically starts sort of antagonizing Lenny uh, as a way of dealing with his own sort of like marginalization and discontentment. You know, she comes into the scene. She does something. You know, something in that I don't want to like draw strict equivalence is there, but something in that sort of vein uh, back to Crooks, right? So it's like that It that just feels very common to the way a lot of these characters relate to the world, which is ultimately through like rage and violence, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like this massive fucking resentment that's just going to boil yeah. over. Right. And that's the, that's the sort of like paired, the paired terms of human 
living to living in this world are like loneliness and resentment. It's a classic cocktail like shame and rage. Yeah. It is yeah. the classic shame and rage cocktail in a different <laughs> idiom. But there are like but resentment and loneliness sort of means that anything that could look like a bond is fragile or already broken. Because it's the depressive version of the shame and rage. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because yeah. Curly gets to be shame and rage, but like, as we know, he's not a worker because he has spurs. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. right. Uh, I do love Steinbeck's little, little like, my, mild, like, tiny, tiny details where we learn, like, how somebody, why somebody doesn't work or something. Also, anybody going around with the glove full of Vaseline is not a worker, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, can we, can I just one, before we do this, Katie, are you going to tell the Russia story about Steinbeck? Can I tell the story? Oh my God, no. Yeah, tell the story. Okay, so I don't remember where I heard this. It's, I didn't, anyway. Uh, so somebody, let me know. But um, Steinbeck is famously, like, wrote a bunch of stuff. He went to Russia a bunch of times and, uh, and, wrote about it at length and um he he tells the story that like um there's a story about him i don't know if he 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 wrote it but uh he was in in russia and and um talk, you know or interviewing people talking to people and so he and this this guy um bought a bottle of vodka because this is russia and that's what you do apparently and he and this guy um drink the whole thing in one night and as you do uh you know he uh he woke up in the gutter Mm -hmm. and this cop came to nudge them out of their slumber and and steinbeck says to the cop oh no 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 you see like i can't (laughs) you can't throw me in jail because there's gonna be these problems because i'm a famous i'm this famous american writer and the cop goes Mr. Hemingway? (laughs) (laughs) Burn. Uh. That's a sick burn. I know. So who knows if that's true, but I'm hoping it is. That's so mean. So mean and so good. And so good. Well, should we do a... Should we play a game? Well, I never thought I'd say this, but... I want you to tell me about the rabbits. Oh, okay. the bun buns. I'm not nearly so sympathetic. I'm still stuck on dogs. Yeah. Well, yeah. maybe maybe you can maybe you can get um your get an emo- get an emotional boner for um for one one particular rabbit that I know that you like because okay. you said so earlier today. <laughs> uh it Vanicula? Anybody- it's Panicula. <laughs> um, so you know, um, Tristan. I don't know if you are also familiar with these, uh, but as as Megan knows, um, these are different from Steinbeck's rabbits because they are immortal. They mm-hmm. can fl- only only one singular. He can yeah. fly by sprouting bat wings, okay. and he is a hypnotist with telekinetic <laughs> powers. This rabbit okay. is dope as hell. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it's a cool fucking rabbit. And sucks the juices from fruits and veggies. Uh, from veggies. Uh, 
herbivore car, herbivore vampire. Yes. So if you find a wrinkle ass white carrot, mm-hmm. that's who did it. I do know, but yes. I do know this. Like this, this is really, I mean, I, I don't know where I know it from, but this is where you get a lot of bells. <laughs> oh, you know, Benicula from being a child at the library, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I do, I do enjoy the Wikipedia description of this, which is, um, and we're going to, I'm leaning heavily on Wikipedia for this, for this little game here. So you're getting your information from Wikipedia on Benicula. Yes. Uh, I couldn't, I couldn't even be bothered to read Benicula folks. Um, <laughs> but it, <laughs> it yeah, pretty much. Lives. Yeah. <laughs> Got shit to do. I can't know about quote, a harmless rabbit with unusual eating habits and minor vampiric qualities. What are minor? My, never mind. Yeah. Minor vampiric qualities. And yes, Megan, as you said, he does drain the juice out of vegetables. And to which I say, he was on a cleanse. I mean, yep. come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know somebody uh, who works at Whole Foods and there was a moment where they could not keep celery in stock because of the magical powers of celery juice. Oh, God. Yeah. I've heard. Uh, it's supposed to be good for you. And you should just be a bun-bun with minor vampiric qualities. It sounds cool to me. (laughs) Bougie bougie white people, yeah. People who go to Whole Foods. Yeah. People who like to have diarrhea. Yeah, Yeah, they don't like solid poops at all. Yeah, some people people like it. Um, So anyway, uh, the thing about Benicula is that this is a series of children's books, and there are a lot of minor mysteries that need to be solved throughout. And there are a lot of twist endings. And there's also something that you need to know, which is that there's this cat, and I'll get to it, but he's always trying to kill Benicula. It's okay. really fucked up. Did did anyone tell Benicula that there are no cats in America? <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else born in 1982 around here? Nope. Okay. <laughs> You're on your own. Uh, yeah. If you want to start singing memories or something. <laughs> okay. So what I'm going to do is read you the first half of a plot of Benicula. And what you're going to do is just guess as best you can how the mix em up resolves. Just free – we're going to free ball it. We're going to work this out together. Perfect. Okay. Okay. So first, we're going to tend to the celery stalks at midnight. <laughs> celery. At Whole Foods. Stalks at midnight. Yes, exactly. Okay. So again, according to wikipedia.com, Bonicula has gone missing. And Chester, who is he, – he's this cat who is very well-read, and he has an anxiety disorder, um, and he, he makes several attempts on uh, Bonicula's life. So Chester begins to fear for the town. He believes that the vegetables that Benicula sucks dry could return as the rabbit's vampire slaves to use an army to take over the town. <laughs> a, like a tomato army? <laughs> <laughs> like a big tomato army. Okay. So the cat and a bunch of kids and a little wiener dog go and they witness two other children doing real Pizzagate hours, doing... <laughs> that fucking bohemian grove shit they're wearing dark robes and they're holding a group of frightened children prisoner Uh yikes jesus christ okay okay so needless to say this all has a perfectly cheerful ending what were those robed children doing 
Were they perhaps having a spa day in their robes? Were they, <laughs> was it Christmas morning? Were they doing, uh, were they members of a pagan society? Uh, Any thoughts think, or guesses? I think that later they would use their robes as whelping blankets to make more tiny wiener dogs because those are sure <laughs> going, a dachshund could kill a bunny in a second. <laughs> no? Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I I hadn't thought of it in in terms of the National Geographic, uh, you know, um, two rams butting heads. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So they're all hanging around in robes, but they're just whelping blankets. Sorry, no, you tell us. (laughs) They're they're the dude, man. They're just they're just they ran. They ran out of drinking ran, white Russians. Yeah, yeah. They ran out of creamer, or it expired, and they had to get down to Ralph's. You know. Yeah, <laughs> I buy it. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, uh, Megan, you're a dachshund breeder, and Tristan, you are the dude. Yes. Yep. And we're gonna keep. Okay, so we're gonna keep this going here. This is good. We're going to talk about the book Nighty Nightmare. Mm. Okay. The dad has a midlife crisis. Oh, no. And he decides to go camping. And they meet these two guys, Bud and Spud, and their dog, <laughs> Dog. It's spelled D-A-W-G. Uh, okay. It's like Randy Jackson. Yeah. Exactly. The cat, Chester, suspects something is afoot, a plot to murder the Monroes and that the dog is luring the animals away to keep them from interfering. Okay. But tell me, what is the what is the dog really doing? What is the dog really trying to do? Uh, happy ending. Happy ending. <laughs> Not that way. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not like a secret society deal it's not a secret society deal or the dog is luring away the other animals no he's is the dog snow white that's what it is the dog is doing snow white and just all the other animals are enchanted with it Ooh, sexy i like it <laughs> so we, have this, we have a snow white uh the dog <laughs> I guess did not want to pee on the rug because he respects its role in keeping the room together. So it's very responsive. <laughs> <going out. laughs> like, you know, yeah, he's, uh, he's not, uh, like, uh, with a curious name, woo, just shamelessly micturating upon someone's rug. He's, you know, he's doing what dogs do, taking a piss outside. Okay. So Megan, you are snow white. And Tristan is an HGTV Property Brothers room renovation guy. <laughs> yep. In terms of this dog. Okay, here's the last one before I tell you what their true explanations are. And it's a real doozy. There's this pet hotel. It's called Chateau Bow Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, man. Except that would be a totally real name, by the way. Like, pet daycares have the dumbest names. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're worse it than is. yarn shops, and that's saying something. <laughs> There's one called Citizen Canine. Oh, God. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) I like that a little bit. Is there a long table the dogs sit at resentfully? (laughs) I haven't actually been there. 
yeah, well, uh, maybe pay a visit. So, okay, Chateau Bow Wow. They notice that there's a different group of animals hanging around there than, they, than they're used to. Uh, there's a very sad Great Dane named Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Hamlet's owner left him there a long time ago, uh, and they leave the chateau to escort Hamlet back. The address turns out to be a nursing home that doesn't allow animals. <laughs> Hamlet, though, finds – oh, my God. Okay. Fucking hell. Hamlet finds his old owner, and it's revealed that the owner was a ventriloquist. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. Okay. Okay. And the owner – who is a ventriloquist is in the nursing home. Okay. What's the happy ending here? Oh man. Oh, good. The happy ending. Uh fuck it. I we, I had high hopes we started with the Chateau Bow Wow that I was gonna be able to stay with Lebowski and make it like Jackie Treehorn's garden party. Um <laughs> but I I can't I, I the, the nursing home is stretching. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna take it to a different co- uh, object and I'm gonna take it, I think Breaking Bad and uh oh. Hector Hector Salamaca blows up the nursing home to uh to 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 assassinate to free everyone. Uh, yeah, exactly. To free everyone, that's right. There you go. That's why. <laughs> I just mean in this particular and, happy and, ending. And Hector Salamaca apparently was a ventriloquist <laughs> before he became <laughs> a notorious uh, drug cartel leader. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I think that the nursing home makes an exception for the world's largest dog who can uh, move its mouth like a ventriloquist dummy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that the guy in the nursing home uses the giant dog as his dummy. <laughs> also, fuck that dog. Great Danes live for like six years. If we waited yeah, like 45 yeah. seconds, the dog would die anyway. Um, well, yeah, they are they are large. Their hearts are gigantic. So Megan says just just simply allow the Great Dane to to pass whenever it's his time, <laughs> and and Tristan, I uh, I blacked out when he said high hopes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all I that's all I know. It's it's tough to award points for this because it's clear that you're both winners um, <laughs> or actually yep. i feel like I- i'm gonna declare myself the winner of this one because i got to hear these delightful these delightful alternate endings i will tell you how they really end though cool okay, okay. for the celery stalks at midnight the 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 berobed children well, it turns out that they're rehearsing for a play and Benicula has been entered in the pet show at school Oh, um, okay. All right. Logical yeah. explanation. It turns out that it seems like in the 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 second the second Benicula installment, Nighty Nightmare, it turns out that uh, the dog is trying to protect them from his uh, the the criminals that he keeps company with, and he has lured them into a into a house into his own home so that they can stay unharmed and un unmolested. And then the, the guys the are out to, to like kill animals, the criminals. I think they wanted to kill the family. They uh, wanted to kill the, no. or they've trashed the camp. I don't. I don't. I don't. Wikipedia does not disclose that part of the narrative. <laughs> I didn't get a real feel for it. 
Oh, but uh, the third return to Howliday Inn. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What happened? What happened in that one was using ventriloquism. The pets and patients convinced the staff of the nursing home to allow Hamlet, the Great Dane, to stay. I was totally right. You're totally right. (laughs) (laughs) And um, and then the the pets. The the I can't tell who's a child and who's a pet half the time. Uh, <laughs> but Harold, Chester, and Howie are picked up at the end, and they fool their family with all sorts of fun ventriloquism tricks. Um, so they become uh, emotional terrorists at home. <laughs> Excellent. That's what ventriloquism is. In- indeed, indeed, you scare people with dolls and uh, your voice. Yep. <laughs> um, congratulations to both of you. Uh, for uh, for t- taking this to places that. I could I could never have dreamed of and I'm so thrilled by. So uh this has been Better Red Than Dead. You can find Tristan on Twitter at TJ Schweiger. You can find Katie on Twitter at Katie Cryo. You can find me on Twitter at Tesslersaurus. You can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Better Red Pod, and email us at betterredpodcast at gmail.com, but only if you have a similarly entertaining bunny game. Um <laughs> Our intro music is Left Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo was created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Next week, we have Journal of the Play Gear, and then we have Poe's Mask of the Red Death after that. Thanks, comrades. up on Easter morning and you know that he was there when you find those chocolate bunnies that he's hiding everywhere oh here comes Peter Cottontail hopping down the bunny trail hippity hoppity happy Easter day hippity hoppity happy Easter day